Hi, I'm Bruce Press. Uh, I'd first like to thank Ellie for inviting me and the Enoch Free Library for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, I'm a member of the National Capital Area Skeptics. It's a 26-year-old organization that investigates uh, UFOs and other paranormal things. Um, and they first gave me the chance to give this talk at Balticon last year, which is the Baltimore Convention of Science and Science Fiction that's held up in uh, Hunt Valley. I'm also the outgoing chair of the Independent Investigations Group of Washington, D.C., and, um, and our job is also to uh, investigate and educate people about um, science and skepticism. So what is, what is a skeptic? Uh, many people assume that a skeptic is just someone who disbelieves in things. Uh, I'm reading this because I just wrote this this morning. Uh, though the common usage of the word supports this, as Brian Dunning, the host of the popular podcast Skeptoid, puts it, skepticism is the process of applying reason and critical thinking to determine validity. It's the process of finding a supported conclusion, not the justification of a preconceived conclusion. A skeptic is someone who attempts to find reason and evidence for things prior to believing in them. The modern skeptical movement created by people like Isaac Asimov, James Randi, Paul Kurtz, Ray Hyman, uh, was created to help promote critical thinking in a scientific worldview. The moder- uh, why? So that people have the tools that they need to avoid being suckers. Tim Farley, creator of whatstheharm.net, defines uh, organized skepticism as the intersection of science education and consumer advocacy. Or as popular author, as popular author Michael Shermer puts it, Skepticism is not a position, it's a process. So I, I stole this um, around the time of 1952 when uh, this UFO scare uh, kind of went on. Uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers was a movie that came out in 1951, and this was a newspaper advertisement for it, so I kind of stole that. And one of the things that makes uh, the tie-in to Earth versus the Sa- Flying Saucers interesting is they used uh, some actors dressed up like Air Force officers in their advertising. So that created some more of the the confusion having to do with this event. Let's go the other way. There you go. Okay. So before I start this. Um, So this occurred in 1952. And one of the things that we need to do when we're investigating uh, an event is understand the context. Where did it happen? When did it happen? What's the common knowledge at the time? What's the perspective of the people involved? So just to give you guys a little perspective on what 1952 kind of looked like, I borrowed this newsreel. So you want to start playing that. So Harry Truman was president. It's the beginning of the atomic age. And people got their news from newsreels. Sometimes. So this was, remember, 1952, beginning of the atomic age, middle of the Red Scare. People were very afraid of communism. Uh, It was a tense time. 
And so it's not necessarily the same context with which you might uh, be looking out to the sky and seeing uh, things that you don't understand. In my research, this was one of the things I found out about was this unrest in the Pacific that I didn't even realize that we had any involvement with. The seasoned troops make short work of the rebels as they move in under the cover of tank guns after being given their orders by General Volkman. The really tough boys are hustled out with their hands up, but the caps on the ground belong to anti-communist prisoners in token of surrender. Hundreds of these have been slaughtered by Reds through kangaroo corps. Scores were wounded during the affray, and one American was killed. A costly skirmish, but one which will result in a new policy on Koji with careful segregation of Reds and non-communists in smaller compounds. And also, our military, the weapons and the um, sophistication of it, is a little bit different than what you expect today. So when they talk about um, engagement with um, UFOs, you have to kind of scale down your understanding of what they can see, what they can understand, and the ability of onboard radar and things on planes. By a method kept secret by the military. It is brought back on target right here. See the change of direction? It's a little different from drone strikes and smart bombs, right? At all times, it's under control from the plane. Here's the target and a bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? So okay, 1952, some of the other things you need to know about, Summer Olympics, the uh, Democratic National Convention was going on. It was a very hot summer in the Mid-Atlantic. And uh, middle of the Red Scare, the uh, flying saucer thing had been going on kind of for about a year or two, and it was heating up. There were uh, flying saucer sightings in Spokane and Monmouth, New Jersey and Dayton, Ohio. And so it was kind of a, a, a tense time. Um, the box office was people like Gary Cooper, Lawrence Olivier, uh, Carrie. This is not the scary Carrie with the blood, and the, and the it's a different Carrie. And we're talking about Washington D.C. Now we don't live very far from there, but I don't know how how detailed knowledge everybody has of Washington D.C. So the area we're talking about is about 50 miles across. Um, the big circle to the left over here is Washington National Airport. The larger circle over to the right is um, Andrews Air Force Base. The sightings and things that we're going to talk about happen below the map to the south. And right up there, that little tiny uh, circle just under the end of Washington is where the White House is. Okay? So those figure, and you need to have a, a bit of an idea of these locations. The only other place is way up here past where the map is, is uh, the military airlift base in Dover, Delaware. So, so you get an idea of what we're talking about here. Okay, another one of these fun videos. So um, what I want to introduce to you is the modern uh, narrative of the, of the events that occurred in 1952. So this, if you go out on the internet and you do some quick research of what happened, this is the kind of narrative you're going to get. Okay, from places like the History Channel and various sites that promote these kinds of things. Oh, wait, one more thing. 
So um, the, uh, the context for the way this starts, because it sounds like it's talking about something else, and then it talks about Washington, is um, they were talking about a UFO sighting at Rendlesham Air Force Base in England. And um, that was two airmen that, or I don't know, whatever the British call airmen, um, that saw lights in the, in, at night. And uh, it turned out it was a lighthouse or landing lights through the woods that they kind of saw through the trees. And um, that, again, is one of those sort of classic UFO stories. Okay. Across the Atlantic. June 1952. Throughout the United States, an alarmingly high number of UFO sightings sweep from coast to coast. The following months come to be known as the summer of the saucers. Should go bum bum bum. scary. So what happened? Was there a big air, air battle? They attacked the, the White House? No. Those things didn't happen. There was a number of inaccuracies in that, uh, in that video that we'll, we'll talk about as things progress. Um, and yeah, you'll see I throw in a bunch of like, stupid sci-fi references and stuff like that since originally I gave this at a science fiction convention. So um, a lot of things that they got was wrong. As we go through it, we'll find out, you know, how it is. So um, how do we find out what the truth is? Well, we don't want to start with their narrative because it's many, many years old. They may have an agenda. And we don't, when we're skeptical, we don't start with a conclusion, right? We start with the basic facts. Let's go back and find out what the facts are. Well, luckily, for this event, there's a ton. There's a ton of resources available. All of Project Blue Book is available online. We can go back in the microfiche, which I did for the Washington Post, and pull up articles from that time, and the original articles, and do searches, and things like that. Um, there's newsreels. There's video. There's all kinds of stuff available from that time. Plus, we have access, through the internet, of the original notes and the original reports of the investigators of the phenomena from the Air Force. So. Here are some of the, uh, the newspaper clippings that I was able to, to pull out. And yeah, there's um, a lot of reporting on it. But again, is newspaper reporting always accurate? Who are they talking to? Are they talking to uh, you know, quality observers? Are they talking to people that have an agenda? Are they talking to people that maybe didn't see anything, but boy, I hate telling a reporter I didn't see nothing. You know? So how do we work from there? And, and I love, you know, when they do talk about saucers um, and then the pilot's order to shoot down any saucers in range, um, you go back and you look at it and they're, they're really, these things didn't happen. Um, they weren't hard like they saw in the video. You saw these flying saucers flying away around the airplane. Um, there weren't any flying saucers. Nobody saw 
a hard-shelled metal flying saucer. There's not that in any of the first-person descriptions. Um, and if you notice, that said Newport News, Virginia on the 14th, and the events happened that weekend in Washington, D.C., and Newport News has really nothing to do with the story. So the reason I added this is because I love that they called them what's-its, because that just amused me. And also that there's a half-price sale on etiquette deodorant cream. I don't know why that amuses me, but I absolutely love that. So, the Air Force investigation. So the Air Force started investigating UFOs in 1947 with Project um, uh, Sign. And um, Project Sign was actually a pretty well-run investigative uh, effort. The only difficulty with it, it was poorly manned, it had very few officers uh, dedicated to it, and it was poorly funded. And they worked really hard at chasing down all these sightings of flying saucers within the United States and in some of the territories and stuff, like in Guam and stuff like that. Um, they did the best they could. They came at it with an open mind. They looked for evidence. And they tried to draw reasonable conclusions from it. And surprisingly enough, they didn't find any good conclusions. They were not finding UFOs. They weren't finding evidence of a Russian invasion or a Chinese invasion or anything like that. So starting around, I think it was like 1951 or something, uh, I guess 4852, um, was Project Grudge. Now, in Project Grudge, the whole method changed. Uh, the idea that they weren't finding UFOs, that there was no explanations for these things, was embarrassing to the administration. Uh, the Air Force leaders didn't like it, and it was still escalating uh, in the reporting in newspapers and stuff and on television, so in the early days of television. So what they did was they changed the whole thing around and said, look, we need you to debunk these. We need you to go out and actually tell us why these aren't UFOs. Come up with explanations for them that are inherently mundane. Now, most of them probably are inherently mundane. But you don't go out with that attitude, with the preconceived notion that, OK, it's Venus or whatever it is. Uh, you have to look at the evidence. And so they kind of lost that, that mission during that time. And then um, uh, Project Blue Book was the last part to follow on. Is anybody old enough to remember watching Project Blue Book on TV when they were young? Yeah, a couple of you? OK. Um, and so Project Blue Book was kind of a, a going back to doing investigations as best they could. And then what they also did during that time was they spread out the responsibility. Instead of, instead of four or five officers that would travel everywhere, um, they used the uh, Air Force Intelligence offices, which are stationed at Air Force bases around the country, to do investigations locally for them. So this is from Project Blue Book. Uh, this is the actual Air Force report. And no matter what people um, ascribe to the Air Force, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit, um, they seem to be very clear about you know, putting together evidence, interviewing first parties, and um, finding explanations that are based on the available facts. So the, uh, the sightings were, um, this is the second weekend of sightings. They're chunk 26 July. Uh, they were seen both visually and on radar. And um, the only ones on, that were um, positive reports that weren't just uh, easily dismissed were the ones on radar. And that was a big deal. Radar was relatively new at the time. They'd only been using radar commercially for about three years. 
Before that, during World War II, radar was used commonly by uh, the Air Force and by the military. But surprisingly enough, they didn't feel that radar was important for commercial transportation. There wasn't a lot of it, and um, there wasn't uh, enough need, they felt, for radar in you know, commercial air traffic. So um, the, if, you, if you can read what it says here, that the sightings were sporadic, intermittent. Um, they dropped in and out of the pattern, so they'd see three targets, and they'd see five, and then they'd see two, and then they'd see none, and then they'd see seven. So they kind of came in and out of the radar pattern, like they were flipping in and out very quickly. And if you notice, the talk of them is not very concrete. It's their anomalous odd um, that they, um, and, and one of the things that they try and describe is how radar can uh, mistake things on the ground for things in the air. And again, I'll go into a little bit of detail on that in, a, in, in just a bit. I'm trying not to, or, to overload. So this is another one, the History Channel. And again, I put History Channel in quotes. It's probably appropriate that I do that. Many conspiracy theorists suspect the government's next step would be to cover up the visitation. They cite as evidence a reputed sighting that took place over Washington, D.C. in 1952. In full view of the entire world, a squadron of formation of UFOs buzzed Washington and fought our own F-93 jet fighters. General Sanford willingly and deliberately, maybe on instructions from Harry Truman, who was president, lied to the American people. We have received and analyzed between one and two thousand reports. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of it. His own Captain Ruka, in his own book on flying saucers, says Sanford was lying. We have the letter from the Air Force to Dean Condon saying deep six UFOs. So, have UFOs come to planet Earth in full view? Have manifested themselves? Have shown themselves? Yes. Did we see it? Yes. Was there a protocol for handling it? Yes. That protocol was called deny. Okay, so this is a little disingenuous. For instance, um, the, the little bit that they had of General Samford is part of a larger uh, talk that's available online. That 1,000 to 2,000 sightings, that was since the, invest the Air Force investigation of UFOs began. So since 1947 to 1952, they had 1,000 to 2,000 UFO sightings. They it didn't occur during that time in 1952. Um, also, um, remember what's in this video. Um, so Captain Ruppelt, in his book, the book was published 20 years after the incidents. And what he states in his book contradicts his notes that are on the uh, Air Force record at the time. So clearly, there might be a little bit of wanting to sell books involved in that. And also, you saw that he mentioned uh, the F-93s. So let's, let's talk about the F-93s. Anybody? You may recognize what it's from? from. Yeah, from the British TV series UFO. So did F-93s battle with UFOs? No. For instance, 
Uh, F-93s couldn't have battled with UFOs because F-93s never went into service. So, I mean, a little tiny bit of due diligence on the part of the History Channel would have been nice. So, yes, it could not have been F-93s because F-93s were never used. F-94s, however, were used at the time. And so the question is, did they do battle with UFOs? So this is a Lockheed F-94. Indeed, F-94s were scrambled out of Dover, Delaware at one point during that weekend to see if they could find those things that were seen on, um, on radar. No, no shots were fired. There was no battle in, in space. Um, the top speed of 640 miles per hour is important uh, for something later on. Um, and, and remember that the space we're talking about is 50 miles. So at 600 miles an hour, that's five minutes to cross it. So anything within that space can move out of it very quickly. So this is a, a direct report from the pilot of one of those F-94s. And the pilot himself, instead of saying, I saw flying saucers, said, the possible explanation for these sightings, every time he was vectored into the area of sightings, it was noticed that the area was hazy, dark, turbulent, had high moisture content, and the haze was approximately at 1,200, 1,500 feet where the flying saucers were expected to be seen. And they were, lights were sighted off at 5 to 10 miles away, and that the reflections appeared to be on the bottom of the haze. Okay, so just the way you're driving down the road, and you might see the reflection of the sun or something in a puddle um, or in a mirage on the highway, um, planes are able to see just the opposite, instead of being on the pavement, on a layer of moisture in the sky that creates this reflective layer that can reflect back both radar and visual sightings. And this was from the pilot. So the pilot didn't say, holy crap, I saw a flying saucer. He said, I saw some lights and some haze. And I didn't shoot at it either over a heavily populated area. There we go. Okay, so this is a little quiz to see if you guys would be able to recognize a flying saucer if you saw one. Now I'm going to show you, I think, five pictures each of those pictures shows um, a flying saucer or something. And I want you to pick out which you think that the current UFO community would identify as one of the best examples of a picture of a flying saucer. Okay, so this isn't your, necessarily what you think is the best picture. This is what they think is the best picture of a flying saucer. So this is one, two, three... Four, there's one more, five. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Let me get a little preview of something. So I'm going to, uh, like, maybe by the show of hands, have you guys tell me which ones you think are, are is their pick of the, the best example of a flying saucer picture. So picture one, anybody? Convinced these are flying saucers? No? Two? Did, again, did, would they think this is their, their best picture of flying saucer? Three? See about half, maybe almost half the room. Four. Okay. And five. Ooh, just two people. Okay. Okay, so let's let's go back to number one. Um, make sure I'm at number one. Yep. Okay, so number one, uh, as you can see, that's the Washington Monument. This is a picture that I took in 2011. This is not what anybody thinks is a flying saucer. Those are lens flares. So because uh, modern camera lenses are made up of multiple elements, 
uh, as the light goes through them, they can create reflections inside the lens. And so you can see that these street lights down here are reflected. They aren't actually reflected in the sky, but the camera sees them as if they were reflected in the sky. This is what, when you search for UFOs 1952, this is the picture you get. So this is the picture that the UFO community thinks is a really good example of, of UFOs. Uh, it turns out, unfortunately, although the provenance is kind of lost, um, this picture was not taken at, in 1952. And if you see the whole picture, just like in my picture of the Washington Monument, you can see the lights that are reflected up in the camera lens. And this picture is from about 1965, and it appeared in Life magazine. Um, in one of, the, um, one of the History Channel shows, they, uh, they animated this. They created a new one, and they animated it with those lights moving in formation above the Capitol. And, and you'll find that video online as well. Again, that's a recreation by History Channel. It's, it's uh, promoted as being uh, UFOs. So this is, this is the one that, that they like the best. Does anybody know where this is from? Thank you. Nice. Yeah, so that's from The Day the Earth Stood Still, the 1951 version of the movie. It's Venus. Uh, very often, um, with that same effect that you get, with the moon seeming really large over the horizon and your apparent <coughs> movement um, affecting the movement of things you perceive, Venus can sometimes be confused with an unidentified flying object. And again, uh, that's Washington Monument here in Baltimore, and that's a picture I took. So again, lens flares. So do you believe what you see? How good are we at seeing something with no context potentially and understanding what it is that we're looking at. So I'm assuming that most of you people see three probably naked, attractive young ladies in that picture. Uh, but this is a PG-13 talk. <laughs> Your mind is really good at filling in the blanks for things that you don't quite understand. If you don't see it, your mind will put the pieces in there. So I'm not going to like venture to guess what your mind put in there, but cute bikinis. And again, the perspective of the moon and understanding what you see in the sky. How many people have looked at the moon uh, in the early evening, seen it near the horizon, and said, wow, that looks huge? Yes? It, that's correct. It's not that big. Um, for a very long time, going back to Aristotle, people thought that it was atmospheric conditions that magnified the, the moon so that it appeared larger because of the magnification of the atmosphere. Well, that's pretty easy to debunk by taking your thumb, putting it over the moon, and seeing how far your thumb has to be to cover the moon when it's at the horizon, and then doing it again when it's right above you. And you'll see that same size thumb covers the moon no matter where it is. So clearly it's not a magnification effect. It's actually a, a, a trick of your mind. And they're not 100%. There's a couple of competing um, uh, ideas on how this happens. Part one of them has to do with um, you understand that things towards the horizon are smaller because things get smaller the farther away they are. And yet the moon doesn't get smaller because it's so large to begin with. And the distance doesn't change. So your mind kind of fixes that for you in a very weird way. 
Um, so that's one, and, and the other one has to do with um, uh, how it relates to things that are, are in the foreground, so actual context of the moon. And when you see it up in the sky, it has no context. So again, it's a trick of your mind. Your mind does it. It is not an atmospheric effect, and it's not real either. The moon doesn't get bigger. It's not closer when it's near the horizon. So here's another example of how things... Um, are difficult to perceive when you perceive relative movement. Um, this is the sun, and you can see about how high it is over the horizon, and you see where it intersects with the, um, the streetlights. This is, a, again, a picture I took. And again, if you look at them, if you go back and forth, the sun doesn't move between those pictures. And the sun's size doesn't change. You can see that, that it, it's a little easier to see that the sun doesn't move. But this is where those t pictures were taken. The first picture was taken out on the right over there. second picture was taken on the left. Basically, I was running in a straight line towards the sun. And um, that's at least a mile difference between the two. But the sun position doesn't change because it's so far away that you can't tell. So if you were chasing after something that was so far away and its relative position doesn't seem to change, and you don't seem to get any closer to it, like a fighter jet going after something in the sky, and he's going 640 miles an hour, but he doesn't get any closer to it. Does that mean that the thing he's chasing is going 640 miles an hour? It might, it might not. In the case of Venus or some other atmospheric effect, it, it might not. So again, do you believe what you see, or do you find other kinds of evidence to figure it out? So here's another one. I love this one. So just, a, just a, a visual effect. It's very cute. So it's just all perspective. You have to be lined up to see it that way. And again, um, it's another one that I did where you see the, the tree, even though um, near, near me, the parallax effects, all right? So near me, nothing's changed, but far away, the tree seems to have moved. OK, so this is a quick flying saucer quiz. So if anybody wants to just shout out uh, their flying saucer, their, you know, show off their flying saucer knowledge. Yep, Mars attacks. Yes, this from, um, yes, the alternative factor. Thank you. Lazarus, it's Lazarus's ship, right? Come on, older people. Come on, from when I was a kid. No, no, come on. My favorite Martian. Nobody? Some of you aren't young enough to ignore that. Uh, Lost in Space. Right, from the original Lost in Space series. Thank you. Good. Independence Day, ID4. Nice. Forbidden Planet. Uh, Forbidden Planet, yeah. The Robbie the Robot. And, yeah. Leslie Nielsen. What's that? Yeah. I love that movie. My son is significantly younger than I am, as, which is how it should be. Um, he was not impressed. I love that movie, and he was just not impressed. I think this, not enough special effects and stuff like that. It was too cerebral or something. I don't know, but yeah. And so we still see flying saucers. Um, those, you can find them on the internet. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I figured out what exactly they're coming from, but yeah. 
They could have just been stuff on the lenses. They could have been bugs or something like that. In fact, um, has anybody seen, there's a video that's online, and it was promoted a lot if you are in the Colorado area, um, of UFOs over Denver. Anybody hear about that? Fast-moving UFOs over Denver. Guy said he'd go out there any day of the week and see the UFOs. And the news, the news reporters you know, went out there and said, yeah, they saw it through the camera too. And um, if you look at them, you're like, wow, they move like flies. But they, but they appear to be over Denver. And nobody did the due diligence of putting up just like a white bed sheet or something to see if those things flying around are actually near the camera or over Denver. But they went on for days and days about these UFOs over Denver, but nobody in Denver saw them for some reason. Uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. Okay, so one of the things that was a big deal about the UFOs in 1952 was that they were shown on radar. Now, radar was relatively new at that time. It's kind of like fMRI now. If somebody says, yes, I understand what's going on with your brain because of an fMRI, you'd be like, wow, that's real science-y and stuff, so it must be true. Um, so radar was relatively new to the common people. Um, so the fact that they were seen on radar must mean they're real, right? So when we think of radar, you know, if we've seen, you know, evening news stuff talking about radar, and you see the radar displays at BWI, they're relatively high-tech, digital. They look like your computer screen. There's um, icons of airplanes flying around. They have identifications on them. They know what they are. The guys in the airplanes have radar, and they see the same thing. They can see the other planes coming towards them, and they know who they are. They know how far away they are. They coordinate it with GPS. So everybody kind of knows where they are. Well, back in 1952, at a commercial airport, that was not the case. You had one of those just spinning uh, transducers of radio waves that, as it went around, could see things bouncing back at it. And what you would see on this was basically an oscilloscope, and you would see the timings between what, where the radar transducer was and when things were bouncing back. And there was no picture of the airplane. There was some sort of fuzzy thing there. There was no display saying what airplane it is, what airline, who the pilot is, and whatever else. You couldn't click on it and get more information. And in fact, there was no way to save it. In order to save these images, you could take a picture of it. Or what they more often did was they took a piece of plastic and a grease pencil, and they would, and they would mark it. And that was the only way they could save radar images. So the reason we don't have pictures of what their radar looked, at, looked like from July 1952 is because there just wasn't any. And um, so at the time, again, three years into commercial use, my assumption is that most of these guys spent time as radar operators in the military during World War II, but there was not a lot of context for understanding what went on with radar in a commercial setting. In, in Washington, D.C. area, we have lots of buildings, you have lots of trees, you have, um, at the time, atmospheric issues. So even though radar seems like it would be, it was on radar. How can you fool radar? What would you do, throw something up in the air? Uh, that's not necessarily the case. And again, this is what uh, radar looked like at the time, a single transducer spinning around like you expect it to be. Now what we use is phased array radar, which has multiple transducers. It doesn't spin around. You're able to beam steer it using computers. 
And also because you have multiple transducers, you have more of a like depth perception, right? You can see how far away things are. So here are some of the things that can get in the way of radar being accurate. Uh, ice crystals in the air. Well, it's July 1952. There's no ice crystals in the air. Ground clutter. Buildings reflect radar. Uh, trees reflect radar. Even cars and stuff, depending on where the radar is situated, can reflect radar. Uh, ducting. Ducting is when there's uh, uh, layers in the atmosphere where the temperature changes drastically or the moisture content changes drastically. You've gone out uh, in the morning and seen fog hanging at a very clear level. Um, that's a very different atmospheric condition between the air between the ground and the fog and the fog and going up. So it's denser and it has a different moisture content. So you can actually see that on radar. That's how Doppler radar works. So that can actually reflect the radar and create weird atmospheric things. You can see it, it can reflect and bounce off of things on the ground and bounce them back and they'll appear to be far away, but they're bent, it's a bent signal. Um, and again, that ducting can create echoes that are way beyond the working range of the radar. The, um, the landing radar at the time it, at National Airport had a 25 mile radius. Long range radar was 100 miles. The 25 mile radius radar could seem like it was seeing things within 30 miles that were as much as 80 or 90 miles away. Uh, birds and stuff, mountains, and uh, like we said, changes in the atmosphere. So this is what happens. If there's a, a strong gradient in the, um, in the temperature, creating an inversion layer, the radar can bounce. Things will appear to be out here, but they're actually from here on the ground. So that could have happened. That may explain why the pilot said he saw uh, a moisture layer and why he saw things reflected in, in that layer. It can explain why uh, at Andrews Air Force Base things seemed to appear, disappear. There were three, there were four, there were ten, whatever. Um, and at National, they were not seeing necessarily the same thing that they saw at, um, at Andrews Air Force Base. So this is uh, the log from the time uh, 1952, that weekend in July. And this does show a strong temperature gradient around the same place where the, um, the pilot saw haze, between 1,200 and 1,500 feet. And so it says the above data indicates slight temperature inversion, 800 and at 4,000 feet. So there's two different ones, which can cause ducting. Moisture conditions of these altitudes also appear to be somewhat favorable for anomalous propagation, which is what we were talking about before. So we're starting to put together some pieces here of the story that we were told by the History Channel isn't necessarily jiving with what, uh, which what occurred at the time. Another one of my stupid quizzes. Okay. See, you recognize him, but not his ship, huh? Right, John John's from DC Comics. Yay. Superman. Mark. Okay. So you now you're dating yourselves just a little bit. Yes. Jeeves from Men in Black. The many faces of Doctor Who. So kind of come to the end here. Um,
obviously there's a, there's a lot more information I have uh, about this subject, um, but it gets it gets long and drawn out. It's detailed. It has to do with um, how things were presented at the time, um, what the Air Force investigation was geared towards. But the takeaway here is more about the process of skepticism, the process of understanding your world, understanding information that you're, you're presented with. That um, you need to understand your sources, understand the context, and always question your assumptions, especially now with the internet and you do searches um, how often do you click on things that seem to confirm your understanding, especially when it comes to politics or news? Um, do you click on, when you do a Google search, are you looking at the things that just support your, your conclusions or do you look at disconfirming evidence? Check the facts. They're usually available. If they're not available, you may not be able to draw a conclusion. Um, we have, uh, one of the investigations we have done relatively recently uh, with the IAG is a gentleman who believes that um, he saw Bigfoot in West Virginia. And he goes out there every weekend and hunts Bigfoot. Um, so we had a chance to talk to him. And we asked him, you know, when was your first sighting? Why is it that you go out and hunt Bigfoot every weekend? Well, his first sighting was nine years ago. It he was out in the woods. It was early evening. He had been hunting with two friends. Something moved in the woods and the bushes near them. And they didn't know what it was. Um, and at the time, neither of his companions, and he, this is what he told us, neither of his companions thought it was anything except maybe you know a rabbit or even a deer in the woods. And by the end of the weekend, he was convinced it was Bigfoot. And neither of his friends contested it. They were like, okay, could be. Um, and that was it. And then for the following nine years, he went back to his hunting cabin every weekend looking for Bigfoot. Uh, still does, as far as I know. He set up cameras. He set up uh, infrared. He set up motion sensors. Um, and in nine years, he's found nothing. And it was all based on what he's convinced himself of as an incident where he saw Bigfoot. And he's been doing that for nine years. So you, you have to check the facts and build your own narrative. The narrative that's presented by the History Channel does not jive with the narrative of the facts at the time. Um, one of the things that comes up over and over again, uh, he talked about it before, deny, deny, deny and that the Air Force was not sharing information with the media. Well, you go back and you look, and you find out that um, Captain Ruppelt went to D.C. to investigate this between the first week and the second week that it occurred. He had landed on the ground, checked into his hotel, and the, um, the media, the Washington Post, which had been directed to him from Washington National's radar people, um, called him. Uh, within hours of his checking into his hotel and landing on the ground and said, what can you tell us about this UFO? What can you tell us about what's going on? And he says, I can't tell you anything. I just got here. I have not investigated it yet. And that's one of the sources of the denial. One of the sources of the Air Force is not telling us the truth. He had no information. At the press conference, which really was the largest press press conference to date, even including ones given during World War II, 
and the idea was deny, 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 again, there was no information to present. There was nothing to tell people. But they had this big press conference because Truman and um, the administration didn't want this flying saucer thing getting out of hand. They had enough trouble with communist fears. They had enough trouble with the convention, with the Summer Olympics, and everything else going on that they wanted to kind of nip it in the bud as a PR uh, event. And so they had this big briefing where they said, we have no knowledge, no understanding, and no evidence of UFOs and alien invasion or any other country invading this country, which was accurate at the time. And so they're, they're, that got portrayed as a denial or as a cover-up. And it's easy to say it's a cover-up. If you don't get any information, they're covering up. Well, there's no information. See how good they are? And it helps to build your own narrative. And always come back to the facts. Okay. Any questions? I think that's it. I don't think I have anything after that. Nope, that's it. Um, yes, ma'am. Not a question, but a comment that if you're looking for facts, an excellent place to go <laughs> is the library. <laughs> oh, the other, the other thing that I didn't mention at the beginning, I'm also a, um, a co-founder, co-organizer of um, the Baltimore Drinking Skeptically. Uh, we're, we are uh, uh, basically a social group. We meet at uh, Slancha in Fells Point on the second Thursday of Slancha, S-L-A-I-N-T-E, in Fells Point. Um, I try to pronounce it right in case anybody knows Gaelic. I don't know. Uh, what's that? Slancha. There you go. See? Uh, drinking Skeptically Baltimore. So if you, and, and, and there's, right, so there's, there's actually, there's a lot of uh, drinking skeptically groups, and there's a lot of uh, skeptics in the pub, and uh, some of them are organized differently. They have, some have talks and guest lectures and stuff like that. We're not. We go, and we drink, and we hang out, and if somebody has something interesting they want to talk about, they can, but it's mostly a social group, and we have a lot of people who just want to get away from uh, coworkers and family who are pushing, say, an anti-vax agenda or believe in homeopathy or, or whatever, and they just need a, a break from that. So we get together once a month to do that. Yes? Yes, well, I'm, the thing I'm interested in is very real, and that is the uh, bill that was passed last year, H.R. 658, which authorizes or more or less mandates that the FAA com uh, com accommodate close between 10 and 30,000 drones in our airspace. Now that's not flying saucers, it's nope. not, it's real. And I am furious about it, and I've had things published, and there are a number of groups that are trying to fight it. And I'm wondering, I mean, everybody wants to believe that flying saucers exist, but this stuff really is going to. And I'm just wondering if you've ever, any of your skeptic people have ever addressed the issue of, of using drones and spying on people, which is basically... A politi which is, but that's a political, um, that's a political factor, right? I mean, there's no question that... How can, how can... Not the existence of drones. Are you talking about the existence of drones or the use of drones in, in U.S. airspace? Yes, both. Well, the use, use of drones in, in U.S. airspace is a political question. Because the decision to use drones or not is a political question. Mm -hmm. 
right? It's decided by politicians. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a question of evidence or fact that it, they exist or not. We know drones exist. And we know that drones are being used in the United States. And it's politicians making the decisions to use or not use the drones. Okay, well, as a skeptic, Political opinion has nothing to do with, with skepticism. As, as a, well, I'm I mean, very skeptical about it because I think it's wrong. That's a moral decision, not a skeptical one. Right? I mean, the you, the, you know, as a, a, the skeptical decision is, maybe is, there's a question of whether drones are being used. If there are people that are claiming drones are being used, the government's denying it. You know, there may be evidence that you can amass that says yes, drones are currently being used for drug interdiction or for immigration interdiction and stuff like that. And you can make that kind of conclusion, but then, but then kind of skepticism, in a way, trails off at the point where you decide, is that right or wrong? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Um, the only way that skepticism addresses whether something's a good idea or a bad idea is, again, using the evidence. Is it effective? Is it um, achieving the goals that, that you intend? So there may be a way to take you know, reason and skepticism and critical thinking and apply it to political decisions. And it certainly can be, right? I mean, you can look at something like, you know, climate change and take, you know, reason and skepticism to determine, you know, should something be done about it and should it, or should it be ignored or does it exist or not exist? And those are skeptical questions. Um, but then it becomes, it does, it becomes a moral or political question as to what the right solution is or, or whether there should be a solution. Right, but that's but again, that's political. Future thing. I mean, does skeptics ever deal with the future, or are they just dealing with what's here at the moment? I think the skepticism may come in as far as uh, the expressed motives versus the real motives. Could. Um, obviously, they say they're observing for this, but obviously, once they start observing, they tend to observe more and more. Yeah. And that, now I was more talking about scientific skepticism, and that does apply uh, in idea in things like psychology and behavior and stuff like that. Again, the question when it comes down to moral questions, uh, there are people like Sam Harris who do propose that there are scientific, reason-based um, ways of determining moral outcomes or or moral decisions, um, but that's for philosophers. So, any other questions? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know, I do. I, I do feed my family and put my kids through college based on uh, big conspiracy. Uh, but uh, I, I can't. I can't tell you otherwise. I, I don't get my check. Well, I, I came here, but um, I had like two incidents where I thought I saw like the UFO. Basically, what? Well, I grew up in the military. My parents, both my parents was in the military. The first experience I had when we was living in Fort Bragg, we lived in a town called Spring Lake. It's right next to Fort Bragg. And it's, uh, it's at the, where we lived at in Spring Lake, we lived at the end of Spring Lake, which is 
next to Fort Bragg, and where we lived at, it was two miles from Fort Bragg. I used to drive my bike on this tobacco road, and when I was, I think I was like nine, I was like in fifth grade or whatever, and I used to see this, this like, I thought it was, I didn't know what it was, I thought it was a spaceship, I like, told my friends it was spaceships. Like I saw it when I was riding my bike. And so one day my father came down and I don't know if he saw it and it was a, uh, I forgot what type of plane it was, he was talking to me. And it comes down at this time every day, he lands into um, Fort Barracos. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that was weird. And like, you know, and then after now I could see it wasn't a, you know, it was a plane. But, um, when I was 26, this was like in 1997, uh, I, I was going to visit a friend of mine I went to high school with him from Germany. He lived in um, Orleans, New York. It's like, like, a, it's like 45 minutes from um, Buffalo. So I'm going up to visit him. I stopped off to get gas. And when I was getting, after I was getting gas, uh, I saw a sign that said 68 miles Orleans. Uh, so I'm going. And I saw it like lightning, and I was like, hey, I don't, don't want to get caught up in the storm. But it was just like, just flashing lights. I thought it was just lightning, but I didn't hear any thunder or anything. So I'm just there going, and all of a sudden, the, the lights was getting brighter and brighter. And then I just saw, like, it looked like a meteor. I thought it was a, I, I was like, oh, I said, oh man, a, a meteor. And then all of a sudden, as it got, went past me, it just stopped. And it just hovered. And I was like, the hell is this? And then it just took back off. So when I got to, when I met up with my friend, I was telling him what I saw. He's like, oh, I can't see anything. You've been drinking. I was like, I <laughs> <laughs> hope not if you were driving. Yeah, so, <laughs> and we, the next day, we were watching the um, news, and it was a story saying people saying they saw a, some people say it was a, they saw like a UFO. And then they, they had someone, a professor from uh, the University of Buffalo, he said it was me. And I was telling my friend, well, this is what I saw. I thought it was me, but a meteor wouldn't hover. And it was like the weirdest thing I saw. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I can't, you know, it's hard to comment on that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of possibilities. And unfortunately, I wasn't there, and you don't have, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But it, is, it does sound interesting. But when I talked to my father and I told him, he said, you just sound not I mean, that was, my, that was my first thought. I mean, I've seen airplanes go through clouds, and you see just the light from their, their, from their lights moving forward. And then as they go over, they disappear because, well, now you're behind the plane. But, yeah, I... I Those helicopter lights can be really bright. Yep, uh, yep. Especially yep. I live on the top floor of my, of my apartment building. Sometimes the, when the fleets come by and they're shining there, it, 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 you know, of course, it does literally stand still and shine sure. and then disappear. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the helicopter moves and the light moves separately. You can hear a helicopter. Not always. Depends on the way the wind's blowing and the way the helicopter's moving and stuff. There was a question in the back. Why would they not assume that that information would be shared if aliens were sighted over the US? 
Well, so that gets into my another talk that I'm working on now, which has to do with conspiracy theory and why um, and why people, you know, believe strange things. Um, it, it has to do with what we were talking about here, where people have a conclusion, and then they look at facts to fit the conclusion. Their conclusion is that there are UFOs, and we are being visited by aliens. And so anything that doesn't conform to that has to be explained. And so uh, an obvious explanation as to why the government wouldn't tell us about um, aliens if they knew for a fact that aliens were landing here or that there, were U that there were alien UFOs, not just unidentified, but alien spacecraft, um, would be that they're covering it up, that they're hiding it from, from the people. And then you, have, then you have the next step, which is, okay, why would they do that? There, they, there was also an era, an era when government secrecy was everything. I was born in 43, and as a kid, UFOs, the flying saucer scared the heck out of me. Oh. Yeah, they do because of panic. Like if if everybody knew, they would right. freak yeah, out. And, and that was one of the things. That's one of the things. They they don't want they don't want people to know because they don't want people to be panic. They don't want. But there but there was so much secrecy about everything. I mean, you know, well, because again, the secrecy and everything else. Right. And so it's just natural to assume that the government is hiding something. Well, hiding a lot of things. Well, it was you know, it was the beginning of the Cold War. Yeah. There was a general air of of fear. And, uh, and that wasn't, you know, being undercut by anything the government was doing at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, there's this general mistrust of the government. And, yeah. Well, that uh, Orwell uh, broadcast is famous. Oh, Orson Welles. But my question is this. Is it possible? I mean, there are a lot of things that the military is developing. I'm thinking specifically stealth bombers. And a lot of experiments were being done back in the... 50s, In the 50s, sure. Of, uh, you know, dropping, they drop monkeys apparently out of these high altitude balloons. And there's a theory that flying monkeys. And, you know, what they saw was this marsh in Roswell was really the remains of a monkey that had dropped out of it. Now, well, the, the Roswell thing's actually really interesting, and that's, that would be a subject for a talk all by itself. Well, because, it, uh, well, because Roswell was very clearly a, um, a balloon that. What was found at Roswell was mylar and wooden sticks. And it wasn't until the 70s that um, an alternate story about Roswell kind of came into being and was promoted by the um, publishing of a book. And so for the years from 1947, when the incident appears to have occurred or you know, is purported to occur, until the 70s, nobody really talked about Roswell. So when you talk about... Um, you know, the Air Force investigation UFOs, it wasn't because of Roswell, because Roswell was kind of a non-event. A non it didn't really cause a stir at the time. It wasn't until 20 years later. In fact, they have this, um, uh, what would you call it, a theory or, or a model for these kinds of events. It's called the Roswell effect, where um, something kind of doesn't really happen, and about 20 years later, there's this big furor about it. One of, one of the things that is um, tied to the Roswell effect is the whole Bermuda Triangle thing. And apparently there's other triangles all over the world. But if you go back, and, and I know when we were all growing up, we heard about the Bermuda Triangle and all the planes that were lost and all the ships that were lost. And you know this, this idea that, well, if it's not some sort of you know, supernatural effect, how were all those planes and boats lost? 
Well, if you go back and you look at the records of planes and boats and shipping traffic and stuff like that, there is no anomalous loss of planes or boats in the area defined by the Bermuda Triangle. It's the same as any place else. And it wasn't until this book was written that talked about these triangles all over the world that people started thinking that there was this Bermuda Triangle thing. And there, if you go back and look at the records, because we do keep good records of planes being lost and boats being lost, and yes, there are planes and boats that are lost in that area. There are planes and boats that are lost in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Baja Peninsula, in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, in the North Atlantic, lots in the North Atlantic, but nobody ever talks about there being a Bermuda Triangle or something like that in the North Atlantic. Um, there just isn't any. There's no anomalous loss. So one of the first things we do as skeptics, again, we look for the facts, and you go find out, is there any there there? And in the case of the Bermuda Triangle, no, there isn't one. <laughs> Yeah. That was one of the first statements they put out, and then the, the next day it was pretty much well, changed. But it wasn't, it, the, yeah, I was going to say, it wasn't the government government. It was a, an officer uh, from the base at that time. And um, I think he probably just had the, the clever idea that they would hide what was, in fact, a secret experiment um, with a, a cover story that, yeah. Ellie? Then a book was published. People make money off this stuff. Sure do. And, um, you know, there's a very strong profit motive to perpetuating a lot of these theories. Some of them, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it seems obscure, though, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't rely on that because if you look at like the, the Flying Saucer of 1952, there's not real huge profit motive unless you're the person who buys this book, that, that sells this book, or, or a movie story. Or the History Channel. Gets viewers. It gets viewers. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like every time NASA needs money, they, there's new evidence of life on Mars. It's oh. always just as bad as all the old evidence. Yeah, but you know what? If you If you... If you follow the scientists and not the media in that, and, and um, for, for the most part, not always, the science, scientists do a really good job of playing down their findings. And the media has a, does a really good job of playing it up because it sells newspapers. It's not, um, I'm not saying that NASA doesn't sometimes make things sound really good so that they can you know, maintain their funding. But if you look at the sources of stuff and where the story comes from, where the narrative comes from, it comes a lot more from the media than it does from the scientists. You know, the scientists put out a paper that says, yeah, in, in this rat model, um, when we, you know, reintroduce the white blood cells from, you know, the, the donor that, you know, have that fight these cancer, you know, markers, and it seems to take on the leukemia, you know, kills the leukemia in the mice. And then the um, newspaper goes out or whatever, New Scientist or, you know, any of those other places. And they'll say that, um, you know, they cure leukemia. And it's a simple process of taking your white blood cells and, you know, just growing a bunch of them. It sells papers. It, it doesn't necessarily reflect what was in the original scientific paper. Right. Where did the trope of getting abducted and probed come from? Where did that originate from? And, I mean, to back off Ellie's question about perhaps motivation. 
who would want to make up a story like that? Is it just attention seeking, or is it based in one event and then that just got you know reflected again and again? I, I does that does that go back to that couple? Yeah. Yeah. Betty and Barney Hill. Right. The first three quarters of the alien abduction. Right. And it goes back to that. Yeah, and that and then again, that was a it was a promotional thing. There was a book, and then there was the movie, and then you know, so it it can go back to a, a promotional motive. It also has a lot to do with um, uh, what people want to understand about the world. That that people like excitement and interesting things in the world, and when there there isn't anything, they create it. Uh, in Carl Sagan's book, um, The Demon Haunted World, he talks a lot. Uh, or has a section on um, how there was a time when people believed in demons and then they believed in angels and then, and they keep getting supplanted. So they talked about demons and they kind of stopped talking about demons. They start talking about angels. They stopped talking about angels. They start talking about UFOs. And then, you know, they, they went back to talking about angels in the 90s. And then um, depending on where you are, it's a little bit different. I've heard uh, um, in, uh, I guess it's Korea or something, they were talking about like, or, or India, where they have mythologies about goblins or, or things like that, and they talk about those things. And so um, unexplained things get attributed to here, there, and, and everywhere. So I can't think of the exact title model or the author, which is not too good. But uh, a few years ago, I, I got a book, something like a, a colossal hoax or something like that. But anyway, it was a very nicely written history of the Cardiff Giant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Cardiff Giant, which was a a, a very really cleverly planned hoax. It was very well done and very well executed. But but the thing that's interesting about it is the social history. This is right after the (coughs) Civil War. People loved stuff like that. Yeah. And the thing that's fascinating about that time, one of my favorite subjects is 19th century science. I mean, the difference between, of course, the 20th century has seen just (coughs) absolute rush of science. But the difference between the science of 1800 and the right. science of 1900 is really amazing. And there are all these currents of science and pseudoscience and popular science right. all going on at once. But the, the thing that's fascinating about it is that the perpetrators of the hoax knew the whole thing. They knew the whole show business thing. They knew how to stage the hoax. They knew how to fool people. But they also knew how to fess up at the right time and not go to jail and still be celebrities, and it was all fun and everybody was happy about it. And then, of course, you were ready for the next right. And we still do that. Yeah. One of the funniest things about the Cardiff Giant was that Barnum wanted to display it, but they wouldn't give him the original thing, so he just made his own. Well, that's, so it was a fake of a fake. Right. <laughs> there was this guy, a, a German sculptor, actually came to the United States. That's so fascinating for the book. And started manufacturing Cardiff Giants. Anybody wanted a Cardiff Giant? <laughs> but I, I don't know how real or unreal it is, but I have seen the one at Hoaxes? Ho- I mean, hoaxes are fun. I mean, there's Piltdown Man, there's the, um, the Calling in Fairies, there's, I mean. Oh, the and, love you, know, you know that uh, Conan Doyle actually believed in the Cardiff yes. Man? Yeah. And that, that, that's amazing. That's always. He could he could write about somebody who has you know immense powers of reason, but it was not his strong suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that's funny. Those are lovely pictures. I think they're some of the most most lovely photographs of the with the with the paper fairies, right? The downside of that though is it kind of makes you know if that looks so real realistic, then you know if, if something real were to come along, then we're going to automatically assume it's 
Well, you know, it's very interesting to me because, and, and I really have to kind of wrap up because at 3.30 my car's firing and get ticketed. Um, but it's really interesting to me that, that, there, that people are still, um, that there's so many people who are still so very credulous given what we can do now, right? I mean, we're, we're living in science fiction, right? I mean, look at, this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, the fact that, you know, that 40 years ago or 30 years ago I couldn't conceive of having this, it's just amazing to me. Um, and, and, but, and also you see things on, I mean, I saw the Hulk. You know, I saw, um, you know, Iron Man fly. I mean, to me, this is just astonishing stuff. And it was as very real as I could possibly imagine. And that we can create these things, that we can make things that are really science fiction, and then we still believe in, you know, witches and ghosts and stuff like that. It just seems uh, amazing to me. Um, but it's people. It's what we do. Did you ever watch this? Um, it comes on the Science Channel's uh, program called What NASA Knows, like Unexplained. I don't know uh, that I do. I don't, I don't like, know that I have. Like Neil Armstrong and stuff like that. Certain things. He, I, I he think I've seen that before. Yeah. But the one that really got me was like, it was in, I think it was 1989 or maybe 90. Um, they have like two channels. Um, one, public channel where people can just listen to the, um, the astronauts talking back to them. Oh, yeah, right. And then they have a back channel. Yeah, right. they, they also have a security channel which is just right. strictly for the military. Yep. And uh, it was a female astronaut and she was saying, like, they're right in front of me. They're, uh, she's saying there's a UFO right in front of me. And it's like, do you want me to contact? And she said, do you want me to make contact? And, and she also said she could see beings inside. Yeah, and then they like they they just cut the public uh, uh, communication away. Yeah, yeah. just went straight into military. Okay, that's a new one to me. I would have to research it. Yeah, they tried to find. Yeah. wanted to hear hear the um, yeah. one on the military, and they went. Uh, I'd, I'd have to research that. I, I I have no knowledge of that. That's that's interesting. That was really weird, man. She was just she was talking like they were like she was doing like some type of test. Right. Yeah. There's also footage that, that NASA was hiding about. They tried to say it was space debris yeah. um, moving around, but it was basically this this round circle thing with uh, changing colors, and it would it moved, and then all of a sudden it took off and made a sharp right hand turn. And there were other couple of things that did the exact same thing. There's no way that any any type of space debris or or any type of technology we have today that it can maneuver that that fast and make, you know make a right hand turn that fast. Again, you know, without having knowledge of the the specific thing you're talking about, I obviously can't comment. It seems unlikely um, because really NASA is not in the business of hiding stuff. And there's too many scientists, too many. That's one of the, my, like I said, my next talk, um, which I'm going to be presenting at Balticon, is called uh, You Wouldn't Know a Conspiracy If the CIA Beamed It Directly Into Your Brain from Space. Um, and and it, it, is, uh, it is unlikely that, um, that the collection of scientists and engineers, lay people, and and military and whoever else would be able to keep something like that quiet if it was real. 
I mean, it's, it's easy to believe that unless you've ever worked. Anybody here work for the government? Anybody else here work for the government? If you've worked for the government, you, you have a real clear idea that they can't hijack. You know? So it's, it's, it's unlikely that something as, as amazing as a contact with something that would be c clearly considered alien would be able to be hidden. Well, we didn't hide them. We pretended they existed. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to get political. Well, anyways, thank you very, very much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you.